and welcome to A Satisfied Mind Podcast, the show for and about people like you who are curious and passionate about life and having a positive impact through how they live it and living this planet and each other better than we found it. My name is Mikey Ellis and I am your host and it is an absolute pleasure to be sharing these conversations with you. It is a very special pleasure to be sharing this conversation with you in particular. So how do I introduce my next guest? I remember trying to capture and explain some of the impact he's had on my life when I wrote a speech for his 70th birthday eight years ago. It was impossible to summarize. For those of you who know me, you'll know how important my dad is in my life. From the youngest of ages, from my earliest memories, he's not only been my father, he's been my mentor, my teacher, and he's become my best mate. He, along with my mum, has taught me more than anyone else. And what I'm so grateful for is how he's done it. He's taught me what it means to be a good man, a good human, through the example he's set, through his actions first, as well as his words. He has the biggest heart of anyone I know. He's humble, he's gracious, selfless and compassionate, and he's honest. He has the most integrity of anyone I know, which is something I'm beginning to appreciate more and more the older I get and realize what is truly important in life. I have so much respect for this man and consider it my greatest blessing to have been born into a family with him as my father. We've spent countless nights sitting around the dinner table, uh, sharing stories and wine, uh, stories about his life and, and a life I'm still only beginning to come to know and I hope this conversation is an insight into why I love and respect this man so much. I suggest you open your very best bottle of wine for this one, uh, ideally an, uh, an aged Margaret River Cabernet or at least make some time and space to soak up the wisdom of a man who has lived a hard life at times but who has dedicated his life to ensuring his family never have to suffer the way in which he did and has done so while wearing his heart on his sleeve. It is my pleasure to introduce my dad, George Ellis. Okay, so here we are in the caravan. What are we doing sitting in the caravan in your driveway, Poppy G? Oh, it's a lifestyle. You've got to be in the caravan. you got to love it. Hey, wouldn't you love it? <laughs> Haven't been able to get out in it lately, so we just sit in it. <laughs> Drinking in the granny. All right, so let's start with a name people have come to affectionately know you by, and that's Poppy George. Poppy George or Poppy G, I often refer to you just as the G. Um, how do you introduce yourself to people? Well, n- n- at this day and age, if I introduce myself, it's, if it's of a you know peer group, it's just George. But if it's uh, friends of my children or grandchildren, I just say, just call me Poppy G. Poppy G stands for George, and and, and I, I take that um, you know I take it warmly and and kind heartedly. How much is being a grandfather um, part of your? life and your identity now how important is that to you it's so important because you you don't realize until you do become a grandparent and certainly as you become a mature age grandparent that you look back and reflect 
on what my life's been about and what I've created with, uh, first of all, having my own children and then having my children's children and one more, my children's children's children because I'm a great-grandparent. Great-great-great-great-great. Great Poppy G. Poppy G, yeah. <clears throat> and you, you sit back when, they, when they, they come to visit or they're sitting around you and you just take pride because you know that somewhere along the line you've had influence one way or the other as a direct parent or indirectly as a grandparent. And you take pride in that and you love every bit of it. Family has always been a very important focus for you. Um and growing up, uh, you always talked about doing things for the family, um, for your family, and uh, and how much has that driven what it is that you've done, the need to provide for your family? It's, it's a, a question that I guess it often gets asked because I have been noted to be a very strong and committed, unconditional family person but I guess it stems back from I can go back as far as my childhood when I don't recall uh, I, I was in part of a family I was one of nine children I'm a twin uh, but to me family in those days was was not a happy childhood and I always wanted to make it my point and my, my focus in life when I had the opportunity and when I became a young adult and then I became a parent that I wanted to provide for my family and give them everything that I, I didn't have and work as hard as I needed to do to provide for my family as much as I could. Not necessarily material things, but material things do come w- with life and they are part of life. You can't avoid that, but you don't, don't depend on that. It's all about surrounding them with the, the love, the comfort and understanding. So what was life like for you growing up as a kid? It's something I, I openly talk about now as a, as a mature age adult because I think people need to understand and, and need to to, um, to come to terms with that, you know, everybody's family is different. And as I said earlier, <clears throat> I'm one of nine children. I grew up, and I grew up in a very um, alcoholic, uh, abusive family. Um, my father was not a, a, a kind man in many ways, and uh, it was due to his his uh, intake of alcoholi- alcoholism. And, and he could not necessarily provide for us all. So as kids, we struggled a lot. We we struggled extremely to have anything, not material things. No, you know, times that we look forward to as a child growing up is mainly our, our, our birthdays because on our birthdays, we got school clothes. Or Christmas time, we were given a, a new pair of pyjamas for Christmas and we welcomed that because we knew we were going to get something new. And we, so we, we were not... Flourished by any means, or or, or, or drenched with them, um, material things that they're just the basic needs. And we we learnt, grew up and learnt how to appreciate the minimal amount of things, and and just run with it. At the time, did you know that your family and your situation was different to other kids and other families? Not at all. It 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 wasn't until I was about ten or eleven, and I was allowed to have a. Uh, stop over with a, a, a couple of school friends uh, on the way home from school. And then I started to realise that 
uh, my, my mates came from a very caring and understanding family, uh, and I and I started to question uh, my own family as to, as to what it was like. No, uh, in the early stages, I just just took it for, for what it was worth. You know, we always had a, a, a reasonably reason warm bed to sleep in. We always had a, a meal, whatever it was, and it was never anything flash. And uh, but as far as love and that goes, you know, I don't ever recall my mother ever ever putting her arm around us or ever kissing us. And my father, well, that was just a non-event. It just didn't happen. So you grew up without much uh, affection from your parents? Grew up with no affection from the parents in, in any shape or form. And look, that's that's due to the circumstances. I mean, as I said, one of nine, mum had mum <laughs> was just kept busy trying to, you know, look after us, wash and feed us and keep us going. My dad, earlier parts in the week, he was reasonably understandable, um, but come towards the weekend, payday, Thursday to Sunday, alcohol took over, and that was when it was so slightly traumatic for us. And we, we lived, and I can say this quite openly, and I'm sure my siblings would agree, we lived towards the weekends in, in, in fear. And what were you most afraid of? Uh uh, being belted, and, and we were used to get belted for no reason at all uh, from my father, and also that he would come home quite, quite aggressive. Um, and for, I, I look back now and realise that he was obviously, you know, illiterate in many ways, and he took the frustrations out. But he took it out on my mother. He used to beat my mother quite frequently on the weekends, and we as children, we would we would gather around her to try and protect her. And in many cases, we would be chased chased from the home with my dad in, in a rage. And we, we were obviously running for our lives. It might sound a bit um, harsh or whatever, but that was reality. So how did you, how did you reconcile that experience growing up and then having your own relationships and your own family? You know, you, you said that you wanted to create the kind of environment for your family that you didn't have was that was that a choice or, or that you that you made and did you have to work hard at that or or did you find it relatively easy to provide that kind of lifestyle and relationship for your kids given what you didn't have it wasn't an easy choice um f- for the reason being that that I, I hadn't grown up with any role model uh, as far as giving love or receiving love or, or being loved. Uh, and I, in my early years and teenage years, I really didn't know how to love <clears throat> love a person, you know, whether it be affectionately as in a female or whether it was just to love a friend, you know, a, a, a male companion or, or whatever. I just didn't know how to show that affection. Uh, I was just very quiet. Uh, I, was, I was known to be very shy and very standoffish for those reasons. I just didn't know how to behave and how to how to to accept uh, a, a person's um, affection I guess as I was starting to receive it more in my later teenage years and as I was becoming a young adult so how do you learn because you know it's it's something you ideally would be would be taught through the uh, through the nurturing that you receive from parents but if you weren't if you didn't receive that, how, how do you how do you learn to regulate emotions and be um, be loving? 
You learn from ob- observation. Uh, as I said, I, I would go to some other friends, uh, f- uh, my, my schoolmates, f- to, to their homes, and, and I could I could witness where as the, they were being coming home from school, they were, they were either hugged by their mother or kissed by their mother. And, and on other occasions, when the, the father would come home, he'd pat the my mates on, on the back and said, how was your school day today, son? How did it go? And to me, that was foreign, and I I just craved for that, that sort of attention. So I guess I, I experienced it from that, but also getting it as in, in more of a, a teenager, young adult, you go to movies and you see where fashion is passed from one person to another. And I started to read a, li- read a little bit to try and understand, you know, what it's like um, to, to, to be, I guess, a compassionate person towards another person. Do you feel any resentment towards your towards your dad? Uh, it's a difficult. Yes, yes. I, I guess I, I do re, re, uh, resent him for, for the person that he was and the person that he had become, uh, and it was purely um, based on his intake of alcohol. You know, I look back back now in in as a as a mature age person, and as my father was aging before he passed away, I sort of um, looked at him. I thought to myself, you know, he he did his best under the circumstances. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's a, the best that he knew, uh, and it wasn't the norm, but that's just the way that it was, and you just accepted it. What are the logistics of having nine children in a family? I imagine you didn't have a big house. Uh, how do you what like what what was what was the household like? How did how did how did that work? Our first home, as as I, I recall it, I was a uh, I think I was about five, four or five years old, and we lived in a in a in a uh, was a two story shop, and we had upstairs and downstairs, and the bedrooms upstairs, and some were downstairs, and then we had a bit of a kitchen out the back. But then we moved on from there. My father was 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 because he was in the army. Uh, he they converted a a, a a shed, not much more than a big shed, uh, on a gun site where they converted it into three bedrooms. There was one for mum and dad. There was one for the girls and one for the boys. And we all shared a double bed. We didn't have our, our own. We didn't have single beds as such. For, as for that. And the and the dynamics. Well, you know, being I had two older brothers, so therefore I had lots of hand me downs as far as clothes go. I very rarely, really, except for my birthday and Christmas, I got a new school uniform and pajamas. But other than that, my clothes, play clothes, as such, were hand me downs from my older brothers. And what was your um, relationship with your mum like? My mum, I, I always, I always felt. Very, I felt very sorry, sorry for Mum. I really, you know, I wanted to be able to support her, but I didn't know how to show her any affection because I was never given any. So I didn't know what it was like. You know, I, I was just there with, as with the rest of my siblings, to try and protect her and and and, and you know, put a barrier around her if Dad, Dad was getting quite aggressive to, to keep him him away from from my Mum. And last night we were having dinner, and you were. Talking about how, as a kid, you used to love used to love spending time in the kitchen with your mum, helping her cook, and so on. Is that something you remember enjoying doing growing up? I did. I do. I did enjoy doing it. Um, 
and in some ways, I guess I was I was penalised for it from my father. I I just had this need, all this this urge to help mum because she had to prepare all these meals. Certainly, there was four four um, siblings older than myself, as well as a twin, and then some younger ones. So, you know, I was quite happy to go and peel some vegetables or do things like that. But my father would get aggressive, particularly on weekends, and tell, he would kick me out of the <coughs> kitchen and tell me that I'm not a girl, I'm just a sissy, get outside, you know, and go and chop some wood or feed the chooks or feed the pigs. Uh, and that was sort of, I had no choice, I had to go. He said, go, you got to go, otherwise you've got to kick in the bloody backside. Mm. Is, is, uh, is, you know, food and, and, and cooking something that, because um, you ended up working in hospitality, uh, uh, you know, through in the early years of your working life is, you know, is food and, 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 and bars and hospitality something that you, do you reckon you, you know, you came to enjoy working in or was that something that you, you, you like to do as a, as a kid? I, I didn't do too much of as a child, as I said, because I, I, it wasn't accepted from my father's point of view that that was the role of what a male would do. But no, as, as I got, got older and started to, to work, you know, I left school when I was 13 and a half and I started, I, I did, did an apprentice, but also I used to work part-time in a hotel in, in my late teens to get some extra money. But I always liked to be able to, I love the hospitality because I, I was, it was a service industry and I always enjoyed being able to help people. And if I was to help someone by serving them or whatever, it made me feel good. I've always got a, a good feeling about being able to provide some sort of help or some sort of service to other people, something that, that I never received as a child or, or a teenager growing up. So when you left school at 13 and a half, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do or any dreams or aspirations for what you were going to do with your with your life? No, I, I can, I'll make a comment here that all through my working life, it was a very successful one and I really enjoyed it, but I never, ever had any ambition or any goals. Uh, I... I turned 13 in the July uh, of the a year and come Christmas time, um, my father said to me and my twin brother that you're not going back to school, you've got to get out and earn some money. We need some money. So I was 13 and a half then and I went out and I started working in a, in a, a grocery shop. I used to work, you know, in the afternoon and late till nine o'clock at night. Uh, when the pitches next door opened and we had to stay till service half time to f- give them ice creams and drinks. And then I'd catch a bus uh, from Fremantle to where we used to live out at um, Coogee, a place called Coogee, at 9 o'clock and 9.30 on the bus at night. And I was quite often the only one on the bus and I was absolutely petrified. It's pretty young for to be, uh, you know, so independent at, at night, working, catching buses home. <laughs> Was that something that um, that you, you know, uh, what were you afraid of? What was that Well, well you know, I was on this big bus. It was late at night and quite often we we used to uh, go past the power station and you'd get a lot of um, workers get, get on on the bus from the power station and they were all men, you know, uh, and I was always frightened. I was, here, here I am, a 13 and a half, nearly 14-year-old boy, sitting in the bus with all these men getting on. I just just had a fear. You know, I had this vision that that all men, for whatever reason, are quite aggressive and get angry and yell and 
And I was just, you know, it never happened, thank God. But I was always fearful that, that one day someone might just, you know, attack me or take advantage of me. But it didn't happen. But no, I, I never liked it. I never enjoyed it. But it was just the way, way of life. So when who was, who was somebody uh, that had a positive impact on your life? When was, when did you, or who, did, was there a, a job or a, or, or, or a circumstance that you're in where you where somebody helped you and and provided that kind of guidance mm. for you that you didn't have when you were growing up as a kid. I guess the the, the greatest mentor in those days when I was 13, 14, 15 year old, and it's been a mentor of all of my life. That is my older brother, brother Joe. He's eight years older than what what I <coughs> what I am, and and as a child, when Joe was home, he would protect. But he would try and protect us against our father as much as he could. And I always saw him as a great mentor as a teenager. He was a person, a person that I would go to if I had any issues or problems or whatever. He was a little bit more worldly uh, out there in the world. He, I was being eight years old. He had, had an apprenticeship at an early age and he was out there in the workforce and got to know other people and was involved with a a young lady at a reasonably early age, so he met other families, and I, I looked upon him as a mentor. But following that, uh, the next person that was like of any great influence in my life was um, my first employer uh, when I did my apprenticeship uh, as a butcher. I had a very compassionate man that was my employer, and the guys that I worked for were great mentors for me in many ways. They were aware of the lifestyle that, that I was subjected to at home, uh, not that I would tell them willingly, of course, because I was always embarrassed, but they, they weren't stupid. You know, they could put two and two together and realise it. If I was to come to, to work, you know, with a black cheek or a bruise or something, they 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 were, they were aware that I didn't didn't fall off my bike or something like that. So there there's four of them, and they really took me under my wing. Was that in the – as it, when you were an uh, apprentice butcher? Apprentice butcher, yeah. Yep. So what about your working life then? Um, you did an apprenticeship in your te- late teens as a butcher, uh, but most people wouldn't know the early – I mean, I guess people who have known you in your professional career uh, in, in later on in your life wouldn't really have an awareness of where you started or what you did in your early early 20s as a, you know, as a – as jobs, so how did you know? How did it? How did your working career or your working life start? Very, few, you're right, Michael. In many ways, people would never know because you know those that may know me as an adult, in certainly in my in the latter part of my working life, which was in the corporate world, they would not have in the wildest dreams any idea that I, by the time I was nineteen, I'd finished a five year apprenticeship, and I joined the army because I joined the army when I was nineteen because I wanted to get away from home. And in those days, you there was you, you didn't go and live in a flat, you didn't share anything, you needed a reason to get out, otherwise my parents would never let me go. So I joined the army, my dad thought it was a good idea because he was in the army, but he did not really understand as to why uh, I wanted to, to join the army, that was to, to get out of home. I knew it, was, it wasn't a good move because I was, I was very concerned about leaving, having leaving my mum behind with younger siblings, but having said that, I also realised that I had to get out and do something for myself, start my own life. And what was that experience of being in the – you travelled from Perth over to 
New South Wales. Uh, what was it like being in the army as an experience? I, I remember. I, I remember going going up. And my dad did actually drive me to the station. Before that, you know, having gone through all the aptitude tests and what you need to do to get in the army, I was quite excited for the fact that I got accepted. But when I went home to tell my parents, my father showed no, he, not that he didn't show an interest, but he was either embarrassed to or what, but didn't really acknowledge it. But anyway, he did drive me to the station. Um, and all I was, all I wanted him to do then was to come up to me and say, Thanks. Uh, oh, good luck, son. I hope it all goes well. Not a word. He didn't. He didn't come to the station. He stayed in the car. Mum and other siblings come to the station to see me off. Goodbye. I sat on the train for three days going to Sydney. I didn't know what to do. I, I was all alone. I didn't even know where I was going. I didn't know what was ahead of me. I, I was sad. I was lost. But all I knew was that I had to go and do something, and whatever it was had to be better than where I was at that point in time. How hard was it to, you know, just just to want your 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 dad just to wish you all the best, or to just to say farewell and and and, and send you off? You know, was it hard to let go of that? Because uh, you know, a lot of people would internalize that and you know and and it would be something that eats away at them or they project it and um it becomes someone else's problem but it seems like you've you've got this ability just to to take the circumstances that are dealt and 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 make the most of it but i imagine it would have been hard well there are there there are a couple of other young guys there that were that i'd joined up with uh, their parents were there. They were excited. You know, the mother was in tears. The dad was there, but it sort of didn't bother me because I knew what my fa- what my my father was like. And, I, and I, as much as I would have wanted wanted to be different, it wasn't. So you've just got to get on with it. That that's that's who he was. And looking back now, in 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 hindsight, I feel he was he was very embarrassed. He didn't know he did not know how to show any emotion. To you know, as us growing up as children, to my mother or to anyone, he did not know how to do that. So that was um, that was difficult from his point of view. But at the time, as a child, nineteen, going away, it didn't make any sense at that point in time. But I knew that I was on a mission, and I just had to keep going. When he passed away, you you made a point of going back and and spending some. You know, you know, he was sick. You, you spent, I know, you spent some time with him. Was that important for you to have that closure on your terms? It, yes, I mean, it, later in life, I mean, he lived till he's in in his nineties, uh, and I was he was in Perth, and I was in the eastern states, of course, and I used to go over almost every year. Uh, and at, while he was still up, while he was alive and and quite, you know, um, healthy and all that sort of stuff, I didn't have a lot. To deal with him, I, I might have called into my sister's where he was staying and say hi and just leave it at that. But in the last 12 months, I guess, when he was in a home, he was a frail old man um, and I would make a point of going to see him. And what used to anger me was, and it came, things would come back to you. I would open the fridge and there was a, there was beer sitting in the fridge. And, and on the Pack on the fridge, his little bar fridge was a packet of Rothman cigarettes. Two things that I hated: he's smoking because it was, you know, a habitual, and he's drinking. And when I saw those things, even then, after all those years, uh, fear came into me. But I, I 
took grips of it. I didn't let it bother me. I didn't let it um, let him see that I was angry. But one thing did, one thing I did, and I'll never know why. Um, the last time I visited him before he passed away, I just bent over and kissed him and kissed him on the forehead, and I just said, "Thanks, Dad." And I walked away, and I to this day, and I don't even know why I did, I did that, but I guess I do know why I did it because. You know, having not giving us all the physical things and material things, he did give me good health and good strength and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And you do. Yeah. It's all right. It's, it's, I'm an emotional person. I know, I know. It's only a matter of time before one of us started crying, I, I, I'm sure. <coughs> but no, I'm having nothing, nothing to cry. Yeah, the, right. the gin really helps with the um, tears. Uh, trust me. But look, I was so glad that I did that because it wasn't long after that he passed away. So I thought, you know, after all those years, at least I had the opportunity to show my affection. You've always you've always been very sensitive and very emotional, and you and you, you know, you express that. Whether you, I mean, it, you, you can't help but express that. Um, has that been something? Do, do you find it's hard to? to be so sensitive when you grow up in an environment like that? I don't ever recall being as a child. I guess my sensitivity and my emotional, I guess, um, experience that I share with people, and I do it openly now, I don't get embarrassed anymore. It it, it started to develop, you know, uh, when I be, I became married, when I became a father, and when I was, to, you know, when my first son was born, and you know, to me that was something that I had created, and that was probably the start of it. And here we are, <laughs> fifty odd years later, and it's still going. But no, and I make no excuse for it because I think it's a wonderful thing. So, how did being becoming a father change you? Well, all of a sudden, I became a father. I was just turned. I was wasn't even 22 when I became a father for the first time to my first son and all of a sudden here I here I, I was I was in the army uh, and and I knew I had security with job and that sort of thing uh, but all of a sudden I had an, I had a, another human being this time it was a bit more than a than, than a, my a pet lamb I used to grow up with or a pet pig I used to grow up with this is a human being this is somebody that's, you know, when you hold it in your arms, it's almost lifeless except for breathing, and yet it was my responsibility to nurture that child, you know, to, to get him to where he, to, you know, through life and to where he is today. And did you feel prepared for that or it's something you've, you, you, you know, you just you, you figured out as you went? No, I wasn't prepared for it and neither was my wife in, in those days at all. We were both very young. Uh, and we just, we just, it was trial, it was trial and error, you know. Uh, it wasn't easy because, you know, and I think parents, young parents, even of today, still when they have the first child, still aren't quite sure how to deal with it, with it all. I, I had, no, I, I had no one to, um, to call upon. I was in, in in Eastern States. My wife was the same, and my wife was had no parents or anybody around to help her. I had an uncle and his wife that used that helped us a little bit. But having said that, we we're on our own, uh, and you just you just you know you, you find your way through it. It's not easy, but you do get there. So, what about your, you know, after being in the army for at that time, and then 
and moving into into a teaching role or a, or a, or a lecturing role at, at TAFE, you know, to, to where you ended up as the you know associate director of a of um, William Anglis down in down in Melbourne, you know, a really successful um, corporate career. How did you go? How did you go from 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 where you started to to, to where you ended up? I guess. Look, as I said earlier, I, I, I never had had any any goals. I just I just took opportunities as as they came, and after after while I was in the army, that was the, I look back and I'll say this to many people: the six years collectively that I was in the army, um, I learned everything. Uh, I I picked up my education from when I left school, thirteen and a half. I went through and got my junior, got my leaving. I wouldn't have got that otherwise. And I was then, then I realized that I wasn't dumb. I wasn't stupid like my father told me for all those years. I was a human being that was, had the, I was very capable and, and I was educated and, and I had the brains to study and, and do that. So, so that, that gave me a whole new, a whole new lease of life. I came out, uh, the, the, when I was in the army, uh, we were being trained in those in those days back in the in the sixties, early sixties for for Vietnam War. Unfortunately, but fortunately, I didn't get to go, and thank thankful for that. Um, but I had twelve months to serve in in my my enlistment uh, before I could be discharged, and in that twelve months, I was sent to Adelaide, uh, where they taught me to be a steward, what they call a steward. But in other terms, it was hospitality. And I, 12 months I did that and thoroughly enjoyed it, and that's when I really got the kickoff. And uh, when I came out, I was posted back to WA and I spent the last six months in the officer's mess at Karakata, and I really loved doing doing what, what I was doing, serving, you know, hospitality, managing it, running it. So then I then, then went out and worked in hotels, part-time in hotels, and and from there, and you know, I had a great, great experience and opportunity when the America's Cup came to Fremantle. Uh, I was at, I just started TAFE at the time, uh, and and the, the the Western Australian Hotel Association and the Tourism WA came to the college I was at, and they said that they wanted to set up a team to train WA people because in Western Australia they hadn't had the the professional hospitality skills to cater for the eastern states, let alone the world. So they they came and and selected a particular guy from who was my senior teacher at the time, and the the president of the Australian Hotel Association said, "No, I don't want him. We want George Ellis." And the principal of that college then said, "Oh, but he's only a teacher." And the president of the AHA said, we, we know George, he's worked in our, our hotels. We know what he's capable of giving and he's the person, his enthusiasm and his compassion for the industry is what we want. So having said that, uh, I was taken out of the TAFE. I worked with the, this uh, Australian Hotel Association for two years and we I was involved with the group training all from the Broome in WA right through to Exmouth and to um, Sejuna in, in, in Adelaide. And and then from there, of course, my career just, I was back in WA and back in back in the college and I wanted to um, experience, I, I wanted to get the education department who I worked for to to do more than just teaching in the classroom because I've been teaching for nearly two years out in industry. Uh, and the, the 
the public servants supervisor had then said, no, we can't do that. It's not done. And I said, it can be done. You're the superintendent. You, with a flick of a pen, you can change it. And he was reluctant to do that. So what did I do? I then uh, I took an opportunity to come across to Queensland to a new college that was being opened in hospitality over over there. And I didn't know at the time, but my wife um, had very quietly expressed an interest in working at that 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 institution, and so that's how I got to be there. And I came across as a teacher, and I was there for about four or five years teaching hospitality and realised that the college itself wasn't really really going or meeting the needs of industry, so I thought it had to be changed, and there's only way I, way I can bring about change, and that was to get in a position uh, of management where I can bring about change, and I did that. And as you just said, Michael, I finished up being the director of the the Kotar College in Brisbane, then South Bank Institute. And the last five years of my working life, I was the the, the assistant director of education and training in the William Angus Institute in Melbourne. There's been a number of turning points uh, in your career where you've seen something that needed to change um, and you've taken it upon yourself to make that change or you've seen that things aren't working uh, and perhaps they're serving the needs, the, you know, the, the selfish needs of the bureaucracy or, 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 or whatever it is. But there's been a few turning points where you've been really in, uh, integral in, in change and, and changing things for the better. Is that, is that something that drives you to 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 do the right thing or to change for change for for, for good it, it's a, probably an innate thing that i have that you know uh, to bring about change um, and in many cases i was going in blind um, i didn't have experience i didn't have the experience in such to do it but i had the the, the, the know-how and i and i had the drive to want to bring about change and particularly working in the education department in WA and in, in Queensland and then in, in Victoria, the greatest stumbling block I had was dealing with bureaucrats and public servants who don't, who did not understand the industry. They'd never worked in the industry, did not understand it. And my, and my greatest, I guess, uh, weapon, maybe I can use the word weapon that I had to, to, to um, fight my way forward or bring about change was that that my sole interest in the whole of the education and training I was involved with was I was there for the students and I was there for the teachers. I was never there for the bottom line of public servants and the accountants. And that was where I always went through. Not It was never easy. I had to front up with ministers and whatever, put my case, but at the end of the day, they had to give me the benefit of the doubt. Something you mentioned and i've heard you say this a lot and it's one of the some of the advice you gave me when i was starting work is don't tell people what you don't know um let them let them figure figure it out <laughs> how how you know you seem to have um you know not necessarily bluffed your way into some situations but um you certainly learnt pretty quickly on your feet as you go how important is that approach being just to just to just to figure it out and make it 
and make it work despite not knowing how necessarily. It, look, I, I, if I can just backtrack a little bit, it, it goes back to once again before I, before I started teaching. When I was teaching, I was teaching apprentice apprentice butchers to start off with, but I, I actually stumbled into teaching. I never, uh, in those days, as a secondary job to doing other things, I was uh, driving a, a meat truck and I was delivering delivering meat to this uh, the this particular hospitality college where they were training apprentice butchers. And I used to deliver meat there, and there was a guy there that used to take the meat off the truck and push it in the fridge and serve it to uh, the apprentices. And I thought to myself, well, that's a good job. I I wouldn't mind one of those jobs rather than drive a truck. But anyway, there was an opportunity came up, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, would you be interested in working in the college? And I jumped at it. I couldn't couldn't get there quick enough, but I didn't realise that, that when I applied to work for that college, that I was applying for a teaching position. And the, the reason that came about because the, the the head of school, he he said to me, but he said to me, but George, but I, I said, what do I know about teaching? I've never taught. But he said, George, you've just spent two years studying the environmental diploma of health to become a meat inspector, and you've got the the tenacity and you've got the 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 ambition to want to learn and you've just studied and you've got through with extremely you know high marks so you've got the ability to study so taking having listened to him i took his trust that if he was going to back me or support me then i was going to do it so i did i came into the tafe i did a two-year teacher training course uh, ended up teaching apprentice butchers uh, but then once again that was I wasn't happy with that because you know just I wanted to do more because I realized that that out there and, and having been related to farmers that there are a lot of farmers that needed to know how to um, to kill their own their own sheep and kill their own their own beef and cut it all up but they didn't know how to do it so I, I convinced the the principal of the college at the time that I wanted to run these courses and I had my experience as the meat inspector to understand the health and hygiene of animals, but also I knew all about butchering. So once again, we had a new principal, and he was reluctant. He wanted to make a name for himself, so he wanted to give me the opportunity, and that was the best thing that he ever did, because it not only helped him, but it also helped me. And we, once again, as you just mentioned, Michael, I was breaking new ground unknowingly, but just going in there once again with both feet. And having taught apprentices for about three years, uh, I was also working part time in a hotel, uh, and the, we had a, a new new college uh, arm built for hospitality, and they had a bar there that was uh, had you know cold tea in the bottles and what talk about tapping kegs, and and I said to them, we need to give the students real live experiences. They need to know how to tap a key. They need to know how to, to pour spirits. They need to know how to appreciate wine. And once again, I had this young principal that was willing to give me a go. So he transferred me from the butchering department to hospitality department. And I made, once again, huge changes there. We were running bar courses, not only for students, but we were running bar courses for young adults. And that was my experience back in 1979 in teaching wine. The head of school in hospitality said to me, George, what do you know about wine? I said, well, there's one red and one white. She said, that's it. You're in as of next year. I want you to teach wine courses. So for that school holiday, school holidays and Michael you may remember you may not because you're only young we spent the whole of the eight weeks 
down in, in the Plantagenet Mount Barker region. I spoke to every winemaker, every viticulture that I could talk to. I came away knowing as much as I could about wine, not reading one word on a book because words don't mean a lot to me. It's all about tactile. It's all about touch. It's all about smell. And when I learned those things in those days, I felt very confident to come back and teach, knowing that I was teaching from experience. And most of my teaching in life has been from experience, not from uh, regurgitated information that I've got out of a book. And you spent some time with Di Cullen down in... Di Cullen was, um, she was was one of the first ladies down there. And I went down there and she taught me so much about wine. And when I started to teach wine appreciation courses, uh, I had no way of getting wine because the department, the government department, was not going to buy wine. Uh, the premises, the premises weren't licensed, so we couldn't serve alcohol on the premises. So what I did, I negotiated with a hotel where I could run wine courses for adults on how to appreciate wine, and then I contacted Di Carlin and other wineries down in the in the Mount Barker region and said, "I'm running these courses. If you if you donate some wine to me and I." teach people about the wines and appreciation of wine and they might like to get to like that wine i said it's a die cullen wine from cullen's estate so therefore it's a marketing perspective from your point you're going to get people to start buying wines you're so, you're an influencer back in the day <laughs> but michael i got so much wine so much wine given me i didn't know what to do well i i can think of a few things to do with it <laughs> and as you know wine's been part of my blood ever since and then you wrote a book about it. Well, um, you wrote the, you wrote the you wrote the textbook. You wrote the textbook that became the industry standard, best um, best selling textbook for thirty years, Michael. The Australian Bar Attendance Handbook. Handbook. Now, how that came about was, I mentioned earlier where I was doing all this training for the America's Cup, and I was the I was the person responsible for all the training. And to me, I, I, it's no good having sending out a whole team of trainers all over the state uh, and with all, all different ideas. So what I did, uh, I, I quickly, well, quickly, as quick as I could, I put together a handbook, uh, a handbook so that w- whatever they were teaching, they were giving everybody the same language. They were talking the same language. And what that was just a, just a, a, a book uh, that I created at, at the college, but at that particular time, I was approached by a guy called David Cunningham. He was from Adelaide, now Victoria, and he was from Hospitality Press. And he said to me, George, he said, I'm about doing specialist books in hospitality. I've got some in in front office and I've got some in coaching, but I haven't got anything in bar and beverage. He said, I would like you to... um, to write a book and I said I can't write a book I've never written a book in my life <laughs> he said well I've got a handbook here he said it's the next best thing he said this is just about um, about beer and tubbing kegs which is your expertise but he said I, I want to um, in- integrate cocktails and wines and what have you and I thought I said, I don't think I've got – I said, there's enough cocktail books around and wine books. He said, George, all the cocktail books we're using in the colleges are from the UK. He said, most of the wine books we have are international wine books. At this stage, we've, we don't have any really Australian wine books. I'm talking about 1979. 
nine in, at this time. So he he sort of talked me about it and I hummed it hard and then I had a very encouraging and supportive wife, Julie, who said to me, you can do it, just just do it. And anyway, so to cut a long story short, short I, yes, I did. The first one was released in 1983 or four, I think it was. Anyway, I finished up uh, doing five editions of that wine book, the Australian Bartender's Handbook. It's still being used today for those that use books, and most of it now is online. Uh, but the, my books are in the libraries and they're used for resource resource material. And that book remained the best-selling book in hospitality for 30 years. I was approached by... Um, Oh, uh, the, the the last edition I wrote, the 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 the, the editor from uh, the oh, I can't think of the name the the, the the international book company now. He said, "Oh, uh, you know, I want you to uh, add this to your book and add that to your book." And he said to me, he "said George, he said you'll never know." He said about three years ago, he said I was I was approached, uh, and I was I was given the task to to get out there and write and get a handbook that can compete with your handbook. And he said, no one would touch it. He said, I spoke, I spoke to the, uh, the, the hotel association, the catering association, and they said that that book, is, it's a layman's language. It's, it's spoken from a man who's worked in the industry. It talks a language of young people that may be not highly educated. They, can, they come out of school and they can pick up the handbook they can be working in the bar and need to know something. They can quickly go out the back, flick through the pages, and they can get the answer straight away. There was no not not bogged down with technology or a lot of jargon or any of that sort of stuff. Did you think you'd be writing, you know, or editing the, the sixth edition of your book when you left school at 13 and a half years old? When I left school at 13 and a half years old, Michael, you know, my, my, first, my first day at tech as an apprentice butcher – and I wrote on the front of my book, uh, Technical College, and I said, T-E-C-N-I-C-K-O-L, technical. Couldn't even spell technical. And I've still got that book because it's not, it's not where you start in life, Michael. It's really where you finish. That's important. Well, let's talk about where you are now. Um, your birthday is coming up uh, soon, in a couple of weeks and you'll be turning 78 years old. Um, what are you most proud of now? I guess what I'm proud of now, is, first of all, is that I, that I, that I have good health uh, and, and, and I'm relatively fit, fit for my age. And that, once again, gets back to my army training. I've never stopped exercising since I was in the army because I learned there that if you've got a, if you've got a healthy body, you've got a healthy mind. But I, I, I sit back and, and, and I'm very grateful, very grateful in my life now because I've got, I've got a beautiful family, an extended family, beautiful grandchildren and great, great grandchildren. And, and both Julie and I, we, we, we are comfortable. We have just moved into a new home three or four weeks ago in a nice part of the world down on the southern part of the Gold Coast. And we can sit back and we can enjoy, if you use the term, I get the fruits of your labour. Because one would never have um, thought, you know, even 20, 30 years ago that I'd be in a position where I am today to be able to do that. But the nicest thing about it all, it's not about, it's not, not about me and what I want. It's what I have and what I have been able to create and provide it for the family. 
to how, enjoy it. How important is is that to provide as opposed to acquire and achieve things for your own, you know, for yourself? How important is it to provide for others? Because it seems to be something that you that's driven you throughout your entire life. I've, I've acquired things, you know, we've got a nice car, we've got a nice car, we've got a lovely home. I've acquired those things through hard work, good management um, over the years. But I've acquired them not for me personally, but because I can be able to share it with mainly with family, but share it with friends. You know, if if, if I was just want to do something for myself, I'd be quite happy just to go off in a car and in a caravan and just go by the beach somewhere. You know, but that's me. That would just provide accommodation and a selfish needs for me. But I want more than that. I I, I want to share it. With my life, I want to have a, you know, an open fire. We sit back and have a port as we have done the last couple of days. You know, hopefully we've got the family coming up tomorrow for the school holidays. And I'll just sit back as I do with a big grin on my face and think, you know, I'm really, I'm really happy that they can, they can appreciate, enjoy the environment uh, that, that, that Julie and I have created for them. Is there anything that you look back on and wish you had done differently? Do you have any regrets? I have no regrets. The only thing that that, that I, I really um, that I really miss, and and it's circumstances that that I can't change a great deal, is that I have part of my family that live in WA and and part of the family that live over here on the east coast. Although they, you know, they they they're young adults, they've got families of their own. Uh, and we keep in touch more so now with FaceTime and all those sorts of things, but it's still not the same as being able to walk up and give them that little warm hug every now and again when you feel like it. We do it when the opportunity provides, you know, uh, we travel back to the West regularly and uh, the family from the West travel over here and the, I've just become a, a great uh, grandfather for, my, for the first time to, to little Maxie over in Perth there and I went over and saw him, but... Um, I see him almost every day on Facebook and Instagram, but if I could have, if I could close that gap, that would be wonderful. But it's circumstances just just don't allow, and that's the world we live in. We, you know, we live in a, we live in a world with these days. So distance is, is is something that we have to just come to be content with. You mentioned um, Facebook and Instagram. You've got a your Instagram account, and uh, you enjoy posting. Photo photos of you know sunrise and sunsets, all the things that you're you're doing. You've got your own um, bitmoji and everything. You seem to be uh, seem to be really enjoying sharing the uh, sharing updates on the on the Instagram. Tech, technology uh, and, and iPhones and, and Instagram. I mean, you know, seventy eight. And I want to master as much as I can because that's the way of communicating these days, you know. And, and I don't do it. I yes, I take some beautiful sunrises because that's the beginning of a day. And if I can share that with with whoever chooses to follow me on Instagram, then I'm sharing that day with with those those followers. Sunset is the closure of another beautiful day. Just reminding people that the day's been, it's gone. If you hadn't achieved what you've wanted to, well, then. Tomorrow there's another sunrise and you get another another opportunity. So I really enjoy it. I try not to do an overkill on it, but as I said, I don't do it. Um, it's and I try to put a little story with it so that I'm just letting people know, you know, uh, this is me and those that do follow or that I follow, they get to know I've got some siblings in WA that that follow me and they make beautiful comments, you know, 
that they know what I'm doing on a reasonably regular basis, and I'm sharing it with other. You know, it's life's all about sharing your experiences. No good bottling them all up and keeping yourself from going home and locked yourself in a closet and say, "This is mine. I don't want to share." It. That doesn't give anybody any warmth or any comfort. If you can make someone's day, and some people, you know, we all have days when, you know, a little bit of a dark side, and I get great pleasure from from Instagram. I know when you put some beautiful photos on of Melbourne, which I love dearly, having spent five years in Melbourne, you some of those beautiful autumn days and, and those trees through the gardens. We don't get that in Queensland. Everything up here is green and just green. <laughs> so when you share that, I look at it, puts put, Puts a smile on your face. Mm. So if I can do that other people, that that's good. It is good. I love it. Uh, just speaking about stories, it was probably about, uh, I don't know, maybe t- uh, 10 years, maybe 15 years ago when I started to really want to learn more about wine. It would have been 15 years ago at least. And, um, you know, I knew you knew about wine. And so we, we had an arrangement whereby we uh, – we would go out for dinner, you and I. And there was a few things that I love about this. Um, it was at a time when I, w- I wanted to learn about wine, um, but I was also, you know, um, probably mid-20s, late-20s, and sort of establishing my identity as a, as a man in the world. And, and I really wanted – and you know, like you, I learned from – learned through – experience and through stories and so what we just what i proposed and what we ended up doing was that we'd go out you and i would go out for dinner um i'd bring or you'd bring along a bottle of wine and we'd talk about the wine you'd teach me about the wine and um and i'd learn from uh through you in that way and we did that but what ended up happening the more we did that was it became less about the wine and more about each other and more about learn me learning about you and that's really you know this this in this conversation and this podcast is about sharing people's stories and that was one of the first times where i realized the impact of uh people's stories not only for others but for you telling that story for you being able to look back and mm remember and 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 reflect on things and, and share that story and i know that it was something that was really that became really important for you because you ended up writing all your all of these stories down you ended up writing your your memoirs you ended up writing the story of your your life which has become your autobiography and it's i still a work in progress but how important was that process to go back and start to document all the things that had happened in your life I think it was in, what you said then was very important, Michael, because, you know, as a, as a father and son or mother and daughter, whoever it may be, you, you grow up, up up with a certain environment, certain expectations. You, you know, I'm your dad and, and you're my son and you do things that father and sons do, whether it be school or sports or whatever, and then, then they branch off and you do your own thing. And But what people don't do, don't do it often enough, and that is that they don't come back together as 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 an adult, uh, and 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 start to talk about their lives one way or the other, you know, which is which is what we, as you said, we did. We thoroughly enjoyed, and and I, and we started at Brown Top. We did start to talk about different things because up until then, 
you know, I was your dad, and, and, and you know, and and you showed great respect from for me being your dad, and what have you. But you, you started to learn a little bit more about my lifestyle and what and who, how I had become the person that you had become. So it's important now. <clears throat> I think later than that, I know it was up. You was up in Cairns, working up in Cairns one day, and we're talking about. Talking about some things over about my childhood, which you which you hadn't, I'd never spoken to you about, because I don't believe that as a parent, you need to you need to I guess um, you know bombard your your own children with your your childhood, whether they be good or bad. And certainly mine wasn't one that I wanted to share with my children because they didn't need to go down there. Uh, but you you said to me some things have come 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 to fruition. Uh, and you said to me, I didn't know that, and I didn't know this, and and I can see it now. You said to me, listen here, Poppy G, one day, you know, I may have children or you'll have grandchildren, and they need to know who the, who, what, who, who the man you have become and how you have got there. Now, if you don't write that down, how are they ever going to know? So you're right in what you're saying, Um I have I have start I have written a book. It's not about my family as such, but it's about my journey in my my working life. As you said, how did how did I come from a, from a from a disruptive and an unhappy childhood to become the director of educational services in Victoria? The journey all the way along there. Mm. And what was that experience like for you to go back and reflect on those? Those um those times and those moments. I didn't realise at the time, and I and I didn't. I, I think it if what it did for me, uh, and I did it, and I did it quite often with the with the emotional feelings. It gave me a huge amount of closure on my childhood, because you often spoke about it in bits and pieces, or talk about it with my siblings, and you know, but I never ever shared it in depth to anybody. Um, but as I was writing it, and it was re- a reality, and it was as if it was only the, you know yesterday, so it did give me a huge amount of closure on on that part of my life mm. more than anything that I could imagine could could have had the same effect. Nobody could could have come up and said to me, "Oh, it's okay, George." You know, it it, it was a bit tough, but but you know, it was the way it was. Having sitting there, going through it all, you know, working my way through it all. Getting the emotional as an adult now, and looking back in hindsight, I could see a whole lot of things that I would never have seen as a child, and got to understand uh, as if I was given another opportunity, I'd probably see maybe my father in a different light, and whatever I'll never know. Mm. Mm. And so, you know what what. Looking back at everything that you've done and learnt and experienced, you know what what advice or what what advice would you have? And I know that you have been a mentor for lots of people in lots of you know various ways. You you're currently involved in you know various men's groups just to support you know support fellow um, fellow men of various ages. You know just going through life. Is there any words of wisdom that you've come to know to be really important that you would that you would um, like to share I guess if anything I, I think I think the, the failing that 
people have most used word people not necessarily just men is is expectations just 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 go with take life one day at a time you know look at yourself stand up in the mirror and say well this is me this is what i've got okay i've got a one big ear one little ear that's okay i don't mind that that's that's okay and life's okay and but don't you know, don't take media and don't take the, uh, the uh, you know, Instagram and all those places. The expectation, don't expect to be something that you may never be because you're only going to be dis- disenchanted with it. You're only going to be, you know, unhappy with it. Look at yourself. Look at what's around you. Look at the people that are around you and make the most of it. Enjoy it. It's, you know, enjoy people. You know, I love this word now called bromance. <laughs> because in my day growing up, bromance was not a word, you know, it was never heard of. But it's nice now to see people, young adults, men that can actually embrace each other, in, not in any intimate or, or way that, that that's unexpected, but just to share that feeling. And it's it's okay to love someone. Cheers. So that's great advice. It's okay to love someone. What would you want people to say about you let's you know let's um fast forward hopefully a a long time from now and you know people are reflecting back on your life and you've you've moved on and and um you know people reflecting on 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 who you are what what you have what would you like people to say about you and how would you like to be remembered I'd like to be, to be remembered as a person that that did that that did the best that I could with the resources that I had, and I was and I, I was able to share share those resources with whoever needed them. That I wasn't a person that was selfish. I was a I was a caring, unconditional, loving person, and as in giving and as in receiving. And what keeps you awake at night still? Probably not. What do you, what do you, what do you, is there anything you worry about now? I, I Yes, I do. I, I must admit, I, I do worry for the future. I mean, you know, I could never understand when I was a young child, as older people had always said, you know, we've had the best years. I thought, hello, how could you say that when you've had wars and you've had this and you've had that? And I look back now and I say, oh, we've had the best of years. You know, I grew up and came through life with a lot of opportunities that, that I could pick up and run with. We didn't have the world that young people live in now. They're confronted with, with technology. They're confronted with, them. Um, you know, le- electronics and things like that. And now, we, you know, we've got the pandemic virus, which at the moment is just, but that's no different than what they, when they had the, the plague back in the early 1900s. So... I just, I just, just think that you've just got to, you know, just run with it, run with it. And what does a satisfied mind mean for you? A satisfied mind to me is taking comfort in knowing that the people around me are enjoying, my, are enjoying the, my, the company uh, and and what I can do to to help them. Well, with that in mind, I think there's very little Negroni left in the glass. 
<laughs> it's, it's probably with no crown you're talking, but never mind. It's probably time for another one and um, and time time for us to uh, to share a meal, which has always been a time where we get to get to connect. Our meals um, tend to be up to sometimes an hour, two hours. <laughs> and uh, a bottle of wine as well. Oh, that goes without saying medicinal purposes. You've got to have the wine. Well, it's been – it's always a pleasure to talk with you and learn more about you and your your story, and I am so grateful for you um, for being my dad uh, and through – how you live your life, being a being a role model and 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 teaching through the example that you set, um, what it means to to be a compassionate, a caring, a generous, um, and a selfless human being. And I think that we could do with more of those in this world. Thank you for the opportunity, Michael, to share my life with you and for those who uh, will listen in this podcast any uh, any any words to your followers out there on the instagram <laughs> just just uh, what do you say uh, watch this page <laughs> watch this space watch this space yeah there you have it an insight into the great man poppy g George Ellis, watch this space. Watch this space. I love that uh, at the end. I mentioned his Instagram at the end. Uh, for those of you following him, he loves sharing his sunsets and sunrises and his inspirational quotes. He's definitely worth a follow. After that conversation, we shared dinner, shared some more stories, and I continue to learn more and more about him every time we do. It's something I made a point of doing when we first started having those dinners over a bottle of wine um, 15 or so years ago. And I know that sharing his story has been just as valuable and insightful for him as it has been for me, and cathartic too. So if I can leave you with a suggestion from this episode, it is to take the time to get to know the people you love especially the ones you think you know well, because everyone has a story to tell that needs telling. And all they need is a generous listener to share it with. It's a gift for you both, just as Dad sharing his stories with me has been a gift for us both. If you'd like to connect with Dad, please send him a follow request on Insta. Um, I'll, I'll put the link to his Instagram in the show notes. It'll... Uh, and I'll help him figure out how to accept your follow request. Uh, you can send me a message on all the socials and I'll be sure to pass it on to him also. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review. I appreciate that and it'll help others find it. And as always, thank you for listening and for sharing these conversations with us. I bloody love this community we're building. And don't forget to subscribe to the Friday newsletter, which I send out. Uh, there's plenty of plenty more behind the scenes content. I may even share a pic of the cover of Dad's book, which featured a very young looking 20 year old me uh, pouring a beer on the cover. Just go to mikeyellis.com and click the link in the subscribe tab. Until next time, I hope that you happy i hope that you're well i hope that you're safe again thank you for listening um i am so grateful look after each other take care and we'll chat soon